The scripture from which we'll be drawing our message tonight is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning in verse 67. This is God's Word. And his, being John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This is God's word. Let's stand together and sing once again, number 244, Come That Long Expected Jesus. Our Father and our God, as we approach your word, we pray that the Spirit of God would be released. We pray that you would give me grace to speak clearly and with your power, and that through it all, Christ would be made much of. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, this afternoon, in the midst of all of these great Christmas hymns, it does seem appropriate to preach from a song, a prophetic song of thanksgiving in Luke's gospel connected to the birth of Christ. Luke's account of the birth of Christ and the surrounding events is filled with songs of praise. In fact, Luke uses the psalms, or the songs, to announce the most important truths about the birth of Jesus. These are spirit-inspired songs. So these people are speaking words not from their own head, but from the Holy Spirit as God speaks through them. And they're offered by the main characters in this story, and they're all, because they're inspired by the Spirit, filled with rich theological truth. Two of these songs are right here in Luke chapter 1. The first is Mary's song, which she utters in this sense of wonder at being called to be the mother of the Messiah. And in more liturgical churches, that song is called the Magnificat. But the song that we want to focus on this afternoon and which we read earlier is the song of Zechariah. And again, for some high church churches, that's the Benedictus. To review the context of this song of Zechariah, we need to get running start on this. You'll remember that the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah. Zechariah was a priest, and he had happened to draw the lucky straw that day, and he had a chance to go into the temple and burn incense to God which was something you did maybe once in a lifetime as a priest. He happened to get that at this point in time. And so Gabriel, the angel, appears to Zechariah while he's in the temple, and he tells him the miraculous news that he and his wife Elizabeth, who are well past childbearing years and who had years ago given up the hope of ever having a child, Gabriel says, you're going to have a baby boy. Zechariah, this priest who is steeped in the Old Testament, 
that contains miracles a lot like the one that he had just been told about, even though he hears it from the angel Gabriel, he's not buying it. He doesn't believe it. And so God chastens this priest for his unbelief by making him deaf and dumb or deaf and mute for nine months. And we know that Zechariah was both deaf and mute because Elizabeth told the family that their baby, who was going to grow up to be John the Baptist, of course, was to be called John. And when she said that, the relatives, as relatives sometimes will do, objected. John was not a family name. By the way, it's typical to name the, the son after the father. What are you doing? So there's this disagreement that gets caught up in now. And, and so in order to settle the disagreement between Elizabeth and her mother-in-law, an appeal was made to Zechariah to step in and give a ruling. And in verse 62 of chapter 1, Luke records, and they made signs to his babies, the baby's father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. Now, you only make signs to someone who can't hear you, right? So for more than nine months, the point is, Zechariah has been made both deaf and mute, so Zechariah does issue this ruling on the child's name by asking for what in that time would have been a wax tablet that they used to carve things into and communicate. When in obedience to God, he does scribble the name John on this writing tablet. His name is John. God gives him instantly both his hearing and his voice back, and Zechariah is primed and ready. He'd been thinking for more than nine months about this, and under the Holy Spirit's influence, he bursts forth with this glorious song of thanksgiving, praising God for his epic blessing. And it's interesting that although Zechariah gives this prophecy, while he's standing at the temple, most of these words are not devoted toward his son John. They're devoted in thanksgiving for the Savior who's going to be coming. Only two verses out of all of those that we read are really devoted to John. The rest is all about this soon-to-be-born Messiah. He begins in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, as is the case with a lot of prophecies in the Bible, when someone speaks a prophecy, often the prophet because they're being inspired by the Holy Spirit, they speak a lot more than they really understand. The Spirit understands, but they don't necessarily understand all that they're saying. That happens a lot. In fact, we see it later on in the life of Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist, who in his first recorded, in Scripture anyway, first recorded seeing or witnessing of Jesus, says about Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, okay? He had almost no idea what he was talking about when he said that. We know that Jesus, as the Lamb of God, that speaks of his sacrifice on the cross, his sin-atoning death. We also know that when John was in prison, that he didn't understand the Messiah as some sort of meek, sacrificial lamb. But here, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he prophesies a whole lot more than he understands. Zechariah speaks more than he knows in at least two ways here. 
First, when he says God has visited Israel, surely he has in mind for this word visited, the same thing that you and I would, and that is he uses it as a figure of speech. For instance, if we're in a worship service and God happens to in some way move in our heart, we, we might say as a figure of speech, God really visited me today. That's the way Zechariah, I think, understood these words. But the Holy Spirit who prompted him knew a whole lot more than that. He knew that in the Savior's birth, the Lord God of Israel, the creator of the universe, was literally going to visit his people. As we were reminded last week in John chapter 1, the incarnation, God is going to take on flesh and dwell among people. But Zechariah also gives more than he knows here under the Spirit's inspiration when he says, for he has redeemed his people. Zechariah really doesn't know what he's talking about. Here, that word redeem means to deliver from evil by payment of a price. So this is far more than simply a Messiah who's coming to, in some way, rescue us, some vague way. No, this is ransoming them out of danger by paying a price. It's a very specific technical word he uses here. Now, Jesus knew, of course, what this meant, because in Mark chapter 10, he says he was coming as a ransom for many. Christ offering himself as a ransom payment to God, and in doing so, will secure the freedom. He'll rescue people who have been held spiritually captive by their sin. The Bible teaches that everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. We have to understand that sin is the ultimate slave master in this world. Sin is so enslaving, as we've said before, that it not only keeps us from living the way we know we should, it also blinds us from being able to see how enslaved we are to sin. Many in our culture today, in our popular culture, think that what the Bible defines as sin is actually what sets them free to be who they are, to do what will make them the happiest. They're enslaved. They don't know it because sin is deceitful. It promises a good thing, but in the end it delivers something very different. Sin enslaves people to the point where people believe that the sins that are most enslaving are, in fact, expressions of their freedom and liberation. That's the deceiving power of sin's enslavement. And part of what happens when Jesus does his redeeming work in a sinner is that he opens the blind eyes of the sinner to the fact that they're enslaved. Then he can deliver them once they see that they're enslaved. In verse 69, the main claim that Zechariah makes about this coming Messiah and Everything else he says flows from this one main claim, is that in this coming king, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. This word horn is really a great Old Testament figure of speech. You see it all the time, especially in the Psalms. It expresses the idea of strength or power or might. The literal horn from which the figure is taken, of course, is the horn of an ox or a bull. In Psalm 92, someone says, you have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. One of the more intimidating creatures in all of nature is a bull or an ox with its horns down charging at you. Even apex predators like lions and tigers have to be very hungry before they will come up against the horns of an ox. Zechariah calls this soon-to-be-born Messiah a horn of salvation 
for us. So again, he's drawing attention to the power of this Savior. In verse 71, he explains some of what is meant by that. First, he says that this deliverance will mean salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. This is another example, I think, of Zechariah speaking much more than he knows, because as someone who is living as a Jew in the first century, when they hear about their enemies and being set free from their enemies, he was thinking about the political tyrants in the Roman Empire. Israel hadn't been under their own national rule in 400 years, and the Jews hated being under the boot of Rome or Greece or anybody else. They desperately wanted to be out from under foreign domination. And so when a Jew heard the Messiah was coming, he was thinking about deliverance from the enslavement of Caesar. Of course, we know that Jesus came to deliver from an enemy far more dangerous, far more ruthless and cunning and clever and, above all, cruel than any human dictator. Even the worst human dictator could be. God knew that it was infinitely more important to us to deliver us from spiritually enslaving tyrants like sin and Satan, far more important than the tyranny of someone like Caesar. God also knew that it took infinitely more power, hence the need for the horn of salvation to deliver someone from a supernatural enemy like Satan. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 is the clearest of all the declarations in the Bible revealing the militant aspect of Jesus' mission on earth. Listen to this. John says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's pretty clear. In the popular culture today, Jesus is pictured as a kindly Jewish sage or maybe a prophet. The Bible pictures him as the ultimate demon slayer who came to crush the head of the serpent under his heel. Later in our study in Ephesians on Sunday morning, we'll see that Paul tells us that our most dangerous enemies, those we're no match for in and of ourselves, and who hate us more intensely than any human being could ever hate us, is not of flesh and blood. No, we may be aware, we may not be aware of their hatred because we don't see them, because they're demonic, but Paul says that we struggle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So Zechariah is saying, by the Holy Spirit, this Savior that God has raised up from David's line, he's the ultimate horn of salvation who will in his mighty power rescue us from our ultimate supernaturally empowered enemy. We know that on the cross with one mighty thrust, Jesus defeated Satan. The Bible teaches that Satan and the demonic powers are very real and they hate all people because people are created in the image of God, and they hate God. But they especially hate Christians far more than anybody else because Christians are people who, by faith, when they receive Christ, they have been given Christ's power and authority over them. And it must absolutely gall them that their former slaves have been empowered to put them in their rightful place. It's these spiritual enemies that hate God's people who blind sinners to their sin, who seek to steal, kill, and destroy people. It's these who were lethally empowered that Jesus as the horn of salvation came to destroy and disarm. 
In the next part of this song, Zechariah tells us the results of what this strong redeemer would do. Luke says that it is to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So the first result of God's saving action through this horn of salvation is in verse 72. There are two parts to this, but it's just really two aspects of one particular element. That is, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. The word promise is not in the original. And so it literally says, to show mercy to our fathers. And the fathers are the Jewish patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Maybe this word is used also for some other Jewish biblical characters of great renown. His point is that in that present moment, by sending Jesus as the horn of salvation, God was showing mercy to these Old Testament fathers, which is a curious thing to say. The question, of course, is how does Christ coming 2,000 years after Abraham died show mercy to him as well as other people that preceded him by hundreds of years? Well, we know one answer is that these Old Testament fathers who had, of course, been physically dead long time, were nonetheless surely aware of the birth of their Savior. Jesus is Abraham's Savior. We know from Matthew 17 that Moses and Elijah personally meet with Jesus at his transfiguration to discuss his passion. Jesus tells the Sadducees about Abraham that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So, Though Abraham is physically dead, he's spiritually alive, and God knows him. These men were living with God in glory. There's no reason to believe that simply because they were physically dead, these fathers in heaven were not up to speed with the birth of Christ and what that meant for them. And so, when you see the next phrase, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, the point seems to be that God had promised to them that a Jewish Messiah would come and bless the nations. And that's coming to pass. And so the fathers would see that and be blessed not only for themselves and for the Jews, but also because of God's faithfulness in keeping his promise. So the truth that we need to hear and remember mainly from this is that God has not forgotten his covenant oaths, his covenant promises that he made 2,000 years ago from the birth of Jesus to Abraham. Jesus came 2,000 years after Abraham, and he was faithful to keep his promises. God was two millennia afterwards. And that's great news for us because God keeps his promises. And here we live 2,000 years after Jesus, and he made promises that he's going to keep. And one of those promises is in Acts chapter 1, verse 10. This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Also, the promise in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those promises were, again, made 2,000 years ago. But as we know from 
Abraham and the promise to him, there's no expiration date on any of God's promises. We have no reason to question whether God will be faithful to fulfill his promise that Jesus is coming again. We may grow impatient for Christ's second advent. The Jews certainly were impatient, having to wait for the Messiah the first time. But 1 Thessalonians 5.24 is clear. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. While this promised return is the best of news for believers, it is not so for those who do not know Jesus, because he promised that he would return not only to claim his church, but also to judge all of those who have not received him as their Savior, those who do not treasure Jesus Christ. For those people, as we've said before, this promise of the second coming of Jesus is the worst possible promise to be fulfilled. Jesus speaks of his return in Matthew 13. He says, the harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus talked more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. 75% of what we know about hell is from the lips of Jesus. And here he is again. I mean, can you imagine this scene of judgment? We know from the Revelation that at the second coming of Jesus Christ, the most powerful people on the planet, the kings, the princes, are going to be hiding out in caves like fugitives, crying out that rocks would fall on them to keep them from being judged. I mean, can you imagine seeing one of God's mighty, terrifying warrior angels coming after you? And you know it's over. You'll never escape either the angel or the coming judgment of God. And that's what's in store for those who are trusting in their own imperfect works to keep them out of hell. Only the horn of salvation, Jesus, is mighty enough to bring sinners to heaven. And if you're here today and you're trusting in anything for your salvation other than the sheer grace of God received by placing your trust in Jesus Christ, then To borrow a metaphor from Jonathan Edwards, you're walking on a rotted wooden bridge that will collapse under the weight of your sin and send you tumbling into hell. At the center of our sinful hearts is our desire to live as the king of our lives. God, however, calls us to live with him, not us as the king of our lives. God calls us to live for Jesus at the absolute center. That's why he created us. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. There's only one thing that could bear the massive weight of our sins and enable us to cross safely over that bridge into heaven that will save us from the eternal penalty that we deserve. And that is Christ alone, who on the cross bore the weight, the burden, the penalty for my sin as he took it upon himself and took the holy punishment that I deserved for my sin. As we place our trust in Christ alone, God will deliver us from these enemies of our souls, sin and death. Another result of Jesus bringing salvation in his first advent is found in verse 74 of Zechariah's song. He says, this result is that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. This is a wonderful promise. 
Another reason God sent his son Jesus is so that we can serve him without fear. I mean, think about it. If the only enemy that could do you any eternal harm has been defeated, and now you have authority over him, if the only weapon with which Satan could eternally condemn you, which is our unforgiven sin, has been ripped out of his hand, as Colossians 2 says it has, if everything in our life is controlled by a God who loves us so much that he sent his only son to die for us, then what ultimately do we have to be afraid of? That's the purpose of the song. The inspired psalmist knew this truth. He says in Psalm 56, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And his answer is, nothing of significance. And yet for many believers, fear and anxious thoughts are kind of a way of life for them. And they're completely unnecessary in addition to being sinful. To live with fear as a Christian is to live like someone who's received a million dollars and paid off his or her mortgage, but who every month sends in those mortgage payments to the bank. To live with fear as a believer is to live like someone who is in shackles while holding the key in their hand. It's a foolish picture. When we fear, we're showing that we don't believe the gospel as deeply as we should. For many people, fear is one of the main controlling factors of their life. They don't even realize it sometimes. Too often, our relationships are grounded more in fear than they are in love. What dictates our response to certain people in our lives is our fear of them. And it can be our boss or someone in authority. It may just be somebody that we just know that's got a strong personality. Emotionally, they actually feel like they're our enemies, even though we would call them our friends. For many, fear has its hold on us. Anxiety, perpetual knot in our stomach. It's like that so much, they just don't even think about it. But let me tell you, if you're in Christ, God has set you free from fear. Because Zechariah tells us that one reason God sent his horn of salvation, Jesus, is to save us from our fear. Do we believe that? Deliverance from fear and anxiety is part of the gospel. If we're bound up with fear... The gospel liberates us. The perfect saving love of Christ also purges fear out of our hearts. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. If you've placed your trust in Christ, there's no reason to fear because the wrath of God has been satisfied as he took your punishment on the cross. For God's children, his Sacrificial saving love can displace any fear. The fear of death, of course, is the mother of all fears. Fear of dying, if you trace most of the fears you have, if you trace them back to their source, it's pretty close to being 100%. It goes back to the fear of death. But for the believer, death's been transformed from a black hole pulling us to hell to the gateway to heaven. Do we claim this glorious promise that Christ, in his mighty saving power, has broken the chains of fear through his blood shed on a cross so that we can serve him without fear. Do we claim that promise? This is part of the result of God sending Christ as our Savior. Paul confirms this in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-discipline. So as we close 
If you're here tonight and you haven't placed your trust in Christ, if you're still living for yourself and not Jesus, know this, God sent his son to save people just like you. Don't let the enslaving blindness of sin hold you captive anymore. Confess that you don't want to run your life anymore. You want Jesus to run it. Turn away from that and be free from sin and hell. And for those of us who are believers, you can be free from fear as well. May God give us the grace to know and to claim and to walk in all the blessings provided by Christ, the horn of our salvation, for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, we're just grateful that you've given us all these riches. And I know when I think about that, I'm reminded that even with all the riches that I have in Christ, too often I live like a pauper. I don't use, I don't claim, I don't believe as I should the blessings that are ours in Jesus. I pray for myself, I pray for all of us who are here that know you, God, that you would enable us not just to have a big God in our minds, but that we would trust in a big God, that we'd know his promises, that we'd live them out. And Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, who's living as the king of their own life, Father, help them to see themselves as on that bridge. And that's not a good place to be. Thank you. Lord Jesus, that you came and you died for sinners like me. You shed your blood so that our sins could be forgiven and we could come into relationship with you. As you change our hearts, our desires change, our priorities change, our values change, our agendas change. When you do that, second birth in us, as Wesley says. God, we need you come and minister in whatever way we need it. God, help us, God, to take advantage of the gospel and to trust in you for Jesus' sake. Amen.